Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I am Emily Tampkin, and this week we will be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. I'm speaking today with Professor Stephen Gill. He's at York University in Toronto, Canada. And today we will be discussing his article, Global Governance as it was, is, and ought to be a critical reflection in the Journal of Global Governance. Stephen, thank you so much for being with me today. Yeah, it's a, ple- it's a pleasure to talk to you, Emily. So to start out, before we really dive into the discussion in the piece, um, how do you define global governance? Well, I, I can only speak for myself um, because there are many definitions of global governance, but my, um, I, I would give it two, two dimensions of definition. There's an abstract definition. Mm-hmm. Um, the abstract definition would include those ideas that justify or legitimate political power and influence, as well as the institutions through which that influence and power is stabilized and reproduced and a set of patterns and incentives and sanctions, which in, ensure compliance with, the rules, regulations, standards, and procedures which are written into the the, uh, the idea of governing. And it entails both, uh, it's not just a public thing, it's not just states and multilateral institutions. It also involves private forms of power, private institutions, uh, the influence of private uh, corporations, for example, or uh, media institutions. Broadly speaking, it, it, it involves both the institutions of what might be called political and civil society and how they operate either within particular localities, such as the city of Toronto, uh, across national boundaries or Canadian boundaries or American boundaries or regional, such as the North American frameworks, or indeed global frameworks, which are more associated with with, uh, global multilateral institutions and initiatives. So it's a very complex set of fields, but they are connected to uh, particular political purposes and attempts to be able to govern um, jurisdictions across, uh, typically in global, in the global sense, across space and uh, increasingly over time. Now that's the sort of abstract definition, but a, a historical definition would would really pose a question: Well, what are those patterns, ideas, etc., as they currently exist today? And uh, what I argued in that piece, which is something that I, um, I, w- I would I would put forward as, as an argument or a hypothesis is that it's, it's principally to do with the currently dominant projects and frameworks of of, of rule and governance that have come into being and, gone, and begun to crystallize since the end of the Cold War, and uh, that involves, as I noted before, juridical, regulatory, and political mechanisms, as well as a whole set of actors, and. Global governance is, is, is always influenced pr- pr- predominantly by prevailing um, patterns of power or emerging patterns of power. And th- the purpose is usually to legitimate and to stabilize and indeed to extend those patterns of power and in institutions um, um, across different jurisdictions and territories. And today, uh, it's connected to reinforcing a, an increasingly global capitalist system um, and uh, what it bestrides uh, upon, which is an incredibly productive but energy-intensive uh, international order, um, which includes both inclusions and exclusions, uh, hierarchies, um, inequalities, and so on. But its principal um, uh, elements are dominated by a combination of American geopolitical power, 
and the major economic and social forces which are connected to global capitalism. So it's, it's the most recent, as it were, um, historical iteration of the historical patterns that I was sketching out uh, at some length in the, in the article. Right. And I, I want to ask you about global capitalism in a bit. But first, um, speaking of this, the current iteration, you write in the piece that what we're seeing now is an organic crisis um, that's a riot that has arisen from structural crises. And I was wondering what, what that means. Like, why is the moment that we're in organic instead of yet another structural crisis or a structural problem? And why is it important? Why was it important to you to distinguish between the structural and the organic? Well, that's, uh, it's, it's a very important question because organic crisis is not a term that's normally used in the literature. Um, and let me first of all tell you what I think in, in a kind of formal sense it is. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crisis which involves a kind of historical moment or impasse or interregnum between um, a declining set of patterns uh, or rule in world order and the governance practices associated with it which are beginning to show contradictions and problems. Um, and new patterns are beginning to be discernible, but are struggling to emerge, and they have not yet crystallized in creating the contours of the possibilities of a new form of order. Um, that sounds very kind of abstract, so let me just give you the roots of the idea. Mm -hmm. I took the idea from Antonio Gramsci, uh, who wrote about um, the crisis of the 1930s, the interwar crisis following the First World War and prior to the Second World War, as a crisis principally, of course, he was focusing principally upon Europe, but basically a crisis of European civilization where the old order had really begun to collapse during the First World War. And um, there were attempts to reestablish that order after the Second World War. Um, and it, its downfall was triggered by, triggered by a number of forces, including uh, a, a historical turning point, which was the Wall Street crash of 1929. Mm -hmm. Surrounding that crash and the contestation about what it meant in terms of the collapse of, of the world economy were new challenges and new patterns of politics. Um, so on the left, you, you had um, the emergence of um, um, Bolshevism, the creation of the Soviet Union, but also um, on the right, in, in Europe and Asia, you had uh, Nazism and fascism and the Axis powers. And they were beginning to deal with and approach that um, order as it were a struggle between the old and the new. And the, the new wasn't necessarily progressive. It was reactionary in the sense mm -hmm. of Nazism and fascism. You could say that uh, Bolshevism was progressive, but some people would also say that that's fairly regressive as well. But nevertheless, it was an increasingly conflictual world order that ultimately led to the violence and the destruction of the Second World War. So um, he, he, when Gramsci wrote about that, he looked at the particular characteristics that had given rise to um, um, the organic crisis and these alternatives that began to emerge. And he saw that as, as basically a crisis of representation and a crisis of, of the dominant forms of ideology and understanding of the self-evidence of the times and the patterns of of rulers and ruled, and it was, it, it, it led to the most lethal war in history. Mm -hmm. And after that war, attempts were made both by, both by the two superpowers, the, the United States and the, and the Soviet Union, to reconstitute world order, to create a new order, although it was bifurcated along uh, Cold War lines. 
And Gramsci summarized that, uh, that concept of organic crisis because it, was in, it involves things which were embedded in the structures and the contradictions of society. Uh, mm -hmm. In other words, structural crises, which were intersecting in different ways, as, um, as a moment where the old was dying and the new was struggling to be born. And as he put it very poetically, and in the interregnum, uh, many morbid symptoms arise. And in that particular case, the morbid symptoms were um, globally lethal. Um, so the question is, what is that concept useful today? Well, I think it is because although the characteristics and conditions are different, um, we, we have different sets of structural contradictions, um, but we also have crises of representation and authority. And uh, many of the elements of the self-evidence of the governance of an increasingly global capitalism um, are beginning to be challenged. Uh, and some of them are being challenged uh, on the left, or what might be called the progressive side of the political spectrum, and some from the right. And in fact, the right seems to be becoming more and more powerful um, and it's reflected in um, new patterns of authoritarian leadership, um, leaderships where extremely wealthy individuals not only try to foster pot pot political coalitions and back parties that they favor, but actually to govern directly. Um, and at the same time, uh, we have a situation in which the present patterns of, of, of development, production, consumption, uh, carbon-based energy systems and so on uh, are, 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 are proving to be um, in, in, in contradiction with many of the life forms of the planet and are not sustainable. And there seems to be a, a new kind of interregnum where that post-war order, which actually brought prosperity and relative peace to much of the world, but not all of it, of course, is now being challenged and new questions are being asked in a kind of impasse and deadlock, which concerns the, the, the making of the future of world order, and with that, the uh, you know, potential patterns of global governance. So in that answer, you mentioned as a, as a previous turning point, um, the crash of, of 29. For the moment that we're in now, when you look at it and take this long historical view, do you see that there was one moment that was a turning point that brought us to where we are now? Were there, were there many turning points? Was there no turning point? How do you, how do you see it, not for the 20s and 30s, but for, for right now? Well, it's always hard to, to identify turning points in the time that you actually live in. Of course. Um, but um, I, t I tend to take a slightly different perspective in, in terms of the, um, the way that one conceptualizes um, shifts, as it were, in historical time and the world orders that would be connected to them. Uh, and, and I uh, take inspiration from a French historian called Fernand Brodel. Um, mm. And Brodel basically had uh, a, a threefold conception of time, which he called the, the long-lasting time, or long durée in French, uh, the uh, conjuncture, or events time. So what would be the long durée? Well, where we are now, to understand all of its logic, we'd have to go well, way back in terms of the historical development of capitalism, and in particular, for example, its, its development and its links to um, 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 massively, massive increases in consumption and production, and particularly dependence upon fossil fuels for, for its development. Um, so you'd have to take that into consideration to, to, to understand many of the um, uh, uh, moments that we might want to discuss. But secondly, the, the conjuncture, and my, the conjuncture that I think 
we need to to place everything into is what many thinkers um, um, scientists as well as um, political economists ecologists and so on have called the great acceleration since 1945 mm. which basically involves two two dimensions two broad dimensions one would be the um, the dimension that's been triggered by the use of nuclear weapons and their spread. Um, in other words, a, a, a new existential global condition of what we might call exterminism. Mm-hmm. There was a potential moment that we face which militates against taking a longer-term view of the future. Um, and now that has morphed with a, a new kind of exterminism associated with species extinction, climate change, and so on. And then the other dimension is the accelerations in production and distribution in, in what I've called a market civilization model, which is increasingly premised upon the idea of consuming today and forgetting about tomorrow. It's very energy intensive. It's ecological. It's got a kind of myopia concerning the future. It's, it threatens the ecological structure in terms of the acceleration in these, these, these economic patterns. And it, again, it tends to make people less... Um, take less of a, of a long-term view to become a little bit ahistorical. Now, of course, that's being challenged by um, um, many young people, uh, such as um, um, uh, Greta when she, when she, she talks about uh, climate change and so on. But nevertheless, th- there are these elements of consciousness that are connected to these, these real material and military elements in our, in our world that everybody is more or less aware of and is affected by. So that's the context I would place the events Mm -hmm. uh, or turning points as they might be called. And um, key turning points recently would be in geopolitics, the the collapse of the USSR and the decline of of, of communism worldwide, whilst at the same time, um, China combining capitalism and and communism has has risen. So it's, it's a contradictory pattern there. And the other would be um, the recent, well, the 2008 um, global financial meltdown, which originated in all, again on Wall Street, like the 29 crash, which has had enormous ramifications and has been, I think, very instrumental in provoking um, the so-called rise of populism and in particular the rise of, of, of more authoritarian or reactionary forces that uh, are seeking to find ways to make sense of and to challenge uh, the the self-evidence of the um, economic and political patterns associated with post post communist global capitalism it's so clear listening to you or it seems clear to me anyway that you you really can't disentangle questions of global governance from questions of global capitalism um, and since you raised this in your piece you you sort of raised the question of whether capitalism is the problem or the solution so I'm going to pose, I'm going to throw it back at you and, and pose that question to you now, if you think global ca- capitalism is the problem or solution for global governance. Uh, yeah, well, you put me behind the, behind the eight ball there because I tried, <laughs> I tried <laughs> to pose it as a question that we should all debate and think about rather than ignore. Um, uh, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, it, many of the things I've just been uh, talking about from the long uh, historical viewpoint that Brodell writes about you can see how capitalism, which has spread throughout all its contradictions and crises, has nevertheless generated an enormous amount of productive and creative power, although that creative power is, you know, you might call it one of creative destruction. 
And you could criticize it in all kinds of ways, saying that it generates hierarchy and inequality and so on. But it does prevent, present a set of alternatives which are far more optimistic for the world than was the case um, you know, during and following World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is so much more prosperity and more knowledge now in the world. We're more inter- interconnected. We're more aware of the different dimensions of the world. And a lot of that is to do with capitalism. It's not just to do with capitalism, of course, because capitalism would want to own all that. And of course, society and politics depends upon putting constraints on any form of power that would seek, seek to monopolize. So in that sense, capitalism is both a solution and a problem at the same time. But the other thing you have to remember is that there are many kinds of capitalism. Nazism and fascism were were, were capitalist states. Mm -hmm. Um, China is a communist ruled capitalist state. Uh, The Nordic countries um, are different to the United States and the United Kingdom. I I spent a year as a visiting professor at the University of Helsinki. Mm -hmm. I I came to admire and to, to really um, I was so impressed with with Finland and the way that Finland organizes itself. Um, it, it's a capitalist society, but it's very egalitarian. It's very progressive, and it has a wonderful quality of life for, it, for, it, for its people. So a lot depends on the type of capitalism. You can't wish capitalism away. So in a sense, what you have to do is to problematize what's worst about it. I mean, what's bad about capitalism today, again, if you go back to Baudel, Rodel said the merchant capitalists that dominated um, Europe and then the world, for example, the, from Amsterdam, the United Provinces in the 18th century, they were monopolists. The capitalists don't like competition. They, they like to monopolize. Um, and the U.S. Used, took, rebelled against, against monopoly capitalism very early on. Uh, they attacked the, the robber barons who were monopolizing energy and transportation systems as well as financial systems in the United States. Nowadays, we have, we have monopolies that are trying to control many significant parts of our lives. Big data, for example, uh, big pharma um, that, that controls uh, many of the medical systems of the world, energy corporations that are not producing sustainable uh, uh, energy provision for the world. They focus almost entirely on, on, um, on, on uh, the, the consumption of non-renewable resources, particularly carbon-based energy. So these things have to be brought under governance practices that can make them more consistent, increasingly consistent with sustainability. And I think what if if that were to happen, um, and they got and we get away from the idea that we can just govern the world as business as usual, and we realise that there are real issues about the future and our our responsibility to future generations, then the hybrid we might get might have some element of capitalism in it. It might have a lot of capitalism in it. But it would have a lot of other elements too, which was socialized control over these forces, which at the moment are really despoiling, despoiling the oceans. Uh, they're connected to species extinction, and they're rendering the future less plausible for, for the health of people and all the, all the life forms of the planet. That call for the future, inspired by knowledge of the past, uh, was given to us by Professor Stephen Gill. His argument... Uh, his sorry, his essay, Global Governance as It Was, Is, and Ought to Be, a critical reflection is in the Journal of Global Governance. Stephen, thank you so much for, for so thoughtfully um, speaking with me today. It's, it's a pleasure. And I, th- I think that the more that people can debate these questions and ask interesting follow-up questions of the type that you've just done, 
um, we're all, we're all going to benefit from that. So thank you so much. Thank you.